and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 7th of January with me, Ian Welsh. Happy New Year from everybody at Innovation Forum. We hope 2022 is exciting and successful for you and your colleagues. Coming up a little later on are some details of what the Innovation Forum team has coming up over the next few months. And just before the end of year break, I had a fascinating conversation with members of the team at Textile Exchange about the potential for man-made cellulosic fibres in the apparel sector. Highlights of that are also to come a little later. First, though, is some sustainable business news. The relationship between the natural world and how we feed ourselves is a key part of the climate change debate. Incentives for farmers to be sympathetic are clearly going to be critical. An indication of what these might look like has emerged in the UK, where farmers in England look set to be given grants from government to rewild land. The total cash available should reach £700 million by 2028, and by 2042, up to 300,000 hectares will be covered by landscape recovery projects. A number of pilot schemes will kick things off, which could involve a combination of full rewilding of a landscape alongside specific projects targeting particular species. Alongside this scheme are plans for smaller scale interventions such as tree planting and wetland restoration, with up to 800 million potentially in funding. The payments are part of the UK government's plan to halt loss of wild species and managing 30% of land for the good of nature by 2030, whilst ensuring that farmers are part of the climate crisis solution. However, while welcoming the overall approach, some environmental groups are sceptical of a lack of detail, stressing that the measures will not mean much if there isn't a parallel review of intensive agricultural practices. There are also concerns around who will gain from the grants, particularly for tenant farmers, who argue that incentives for those that don't own the land they farm need to be structured differently from those that do. On the other side of the English Channel, in France, the start of 2022 saw the coming into force of a new law that bans the sale of fruit and vegetables wrapped in plastic. No less than the French President Emmanuel Macron himself has stepped into the debate, describing the shift as a real revolution and part of France's ambition to have phased out all single-use plastics by 2040. Since January the 1st, French markets have not been allowed to sell 30 types of fruit and veg in plastic wrap, including bananas, lemons, oranges, courgettes, aubergines and cucumbers. The French government estimates that more than 1 billion items of single-use plastic will be cut by the ban every year. And it does seem that such a move is popular with the public. Poll after poll indicate that consumers want action on plastic packaging. The trick, of course, will be ensuring that the law of unintended consequences doesn't play out turning a plastic packaging problem into a food waste problem. The humble cucumber is a case in point. A number of well-quoted pieces of research have demonstrated how a cucumber wrapped in plastic can have a shelf life of up to two weeks, while unwrapped this drops to just a few days. There has been some good deforestation news coming out of Indonesia. It appears that deforestation of the Luzur ecosystem, which is home to some of the rarest species on Earth, has slowed to the lowest level in seven years. The ecosystem, spreading across 2.3 million hectares on the northern half of the island of Sumatra, supports critically endangered tigers and rhinos, elephants and orangutan. Conservationists say that while approaching 5,000 hectares of forest were cleared in total in 2021, large clearances were rare, with tree removal on a much smaller scale, typically of less than 5 hectares. There had been a jump in deforestation at the start of the pandemic in 2020, but the decrease in 2021 has been attributed to better monitoring and also the impact of greater scrutiny on the palm oil sector by international brands that have zero deforestation pledges. 
This is highlighted by the Rainforest Action Network, which says that more palm oil companies that have been linked with past forest destruction have stopped land clearing and instead tightened their own commitments to comply with the no deforestation policies of major brands and traders. Details of Innovation Forum's spring event series continue to be released. We're excited that we'll be back meeting face-to-face -face in London on the 4th and 5th of April for the next in our Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade event series. Once again, we will be hosted by Freshfields and the event will of course be held subject to all best practice COVID-19 safety measures at the time. We will assess how companies can develop and implement robust human rights policies that reflect a rapidly evolving regulatory landscape. Best Buy's passes are currently available and to join the 150 plus other expert practitioners attending, you can save £300 if you reserve your place before the 14th of January. From the 26th to 28th of April, we'll be holding the next Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference, focusing on how brands can transform supply chains, scale circularity and drive positive social impacts. The Innovation Forum team are working on the 2022 speaker lineup right now and using that will be released very shortly. But among the 50 panellists who joined us in 2021 were representatives of Puma, Hugo Boss, Nike, CNA and Textile Exchange. And if you want to join us online in April, you can save £150 on passes if you register by 28th of January. And from the 10th to 12th of May, we'll be holding our Europe-focused Future of Food event. We'll be discussing online how food sector businesses can lead a just transition towards transparent, regenerative and resilient food systems. The January discount of £150 per ticket also applies through to Friday 28th of the month. Full details of how to register are online. And the next in our Climate Action Conference series will be held from the 7th to 9th of June, where we'll be discussing online how to engage supply chains in tackling scope 3 emissions and the route to net zero. Previous climate conferences have featured experts from the likes of Tesco, PepsiCo, Unilever, Walmart and Danone. Stay tuned to the Innovation Forum website for details of this year's participants as they are announced and of course to register for the event. And you can save £150 on tickets if you register before the 21st of January. Finally, the Future of Food US focused event will return in Minneapolis on the 14th and 15th of June. We'll be bringing together leading brands and their stakeholders to identify the key areas of opportunity for the food and beverage sector. Full details on the Innovation Forum website and save up to $400 in tickets if you register for passes now. I was delighted to catch up recently with some of the team from Texel Exchange to record the latest in our podcast series. Textile Exchange is, of course, the global non-profit membership organisation that's driving the use of best practices across the apparel and textile sector. And I spoke about some of the potential for man-made cellulosic fibres with Larry Pepper, CEO, Claire Bergkamp, COO, and Megan Stoneburner, Fibre and Materials Director. Larry, perhaps you can give us a bit of a background as to what the main types of MMCF are and how they're made. Well, just to let you what MMFCs are, it is man-made cellulosic fibers, and they come from a different of sources. Most common is from different trees and forest products, but it also can be a lot of other diverse solutions like recycled cotton or from wheat stubble or bamboo or things like that. So when we look at that, it's a land-based fiber. And while it sources from a land-based solution, it also goes through a chemical process, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in the podcast. 
men made say low six have a significant opportunity to have some improvements when it comes to impacting the climate and land and soils and communities because again they're land-based fiber so when you think of managing forests in a more restorative or responsible way when you think of growing things in a regenerative use and multiple uses of forest and stopping deforestation these are all hot topics so men made say low six and where they're sourced from, how they're used, is something that we have to pay attention to when we're thinking about making progressive, positive steps in addressing climate change, land use, biodiversity, and all the hot topics that we're having to talk about today. So it's a key fiber. Many thanks, Laurie. Claire, could you then give us a perhaps like an outline list of the main man-made cellulosic fibers that we should be thinking about? So viscose, which is also called rayon, although they are the same fiber, are the vast majority of what makes up man-made cellulosics. That's around 80% of what makes up the category going into the textile space. I think it should also be acknowledged that within the kind of man-made cellulosics process, there is a fair amount of pulp and material being created for uses that are not textile and fashion related. We're not going to talk about those today, not our expertise, but just acknowledging it. There's quite a bit that goes into medical supply and non-woven applications. After the viscose rayon, acetate is the next most used. That's around 13%. Lyocell, which is also branded Tincel, which is a closed loop process, is around 4%. And then we have Modal, which is around 3%. And then Cupro, which is actually not made from trees. It's primarily made from cotton linters, makes up less than 1%, around 0.2% of the man-made cellulosic supply. So those are the main ones. So if you see viscose rayon on a product, you know that that comes most likely from a tree. The vast majority of what's going into man-made cellulosics is pulp-based from trees. Around 99% of all of the man-made cellulosic materials are coming from wood pulp, dissolving wood pulp. So not paper grade pulp, but still pulp. I mean, less than around 1% from bamboo. And then you do have those other inputs from cotton linters, recycled cotton, those types of things. But if you see viscose rayon, you see acetate, lyocell, modal, tensel, those are most likely tree-based fibers. Obviously some interesting supply chain challenges given their source from trees and from forests. So what are the main supply chain challenges for MCFs? Like any material, you know, as Laurie was saying, because it is land-based and it's forestry-based, the actual use of the land is going to be an important one. Knowing the forestry source when you are sourcing it is important. With man-made phyllosics, there is also a fairly energy-intensive process using chemicals that turns the pulp into a fiber. I mean, when you think about it, it's a lot of steps to get a tree into something that is almost a silk replacement. The fibers we're talking about are nice, fine, silky-ish in a lot of cases. They obviously can have different textures. They're very fine fibers. And so there is quite a bit of chemistry that goes into creating that from a tree. The interesting thing is that because we are talking about cellulose and cellulose is just a part of a plant, this is the part where it gets exciting, I think, you know, is that you can actually create cellulose from waste feedstocks like cotton waste or even end-of-use cotton garments because there is cellulose in any plant-based material. Extracting that cellulose can be done in different ways, and that's where the innovation and next-generation exciting part happens. But when we're thinking about the challenges, I do think that forestry in general is a big part of how we need to think about addressing climate change. Ensuring that our supply chains are deforestation and conversion free is extremely important. 
across the board. We are protecting those places on the planet that need protecting those high conservation value, high carbon sink value, wildlife corridors that exist in the forests around the world. Having an understanding of that supply and making sure that you understand if you're sourcing from a natural forest that's being replanted or a tree plantation, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get that pulp. But I do think that's one of the main challenges. And then, as I said, the next challenge really is around the chemistry that goes into that. I also just kind of acknowledge that, you know, the work that's happened up to now, really, when it comes to the um, understanding that the industry has gained when we think about the forestry side has been led a lot by Canopy. They've put a lot of focus and really kind of brought the industry's attention to the fact that man-made cellulose 6 and forestry were tied. And then changing markets had helped shine a lot of light on the issues around the pollution and chemistry with the Dirty Fashion Campaign. Our partners like ZDHC have really come along to help look at how the industry can have guidelines for closing the loop. I think that's a little bit of the lay of the land. I know that's a lot of information. Meg, is there anything else that you want to add in there? There are so many different stages and variables in processing and the creation of man-made cellulosic fibers. And so it's really important that we look at each of these instead of just focusing on certain stages in silo. Example being that as we think about feedstock replacements, we also need to think about the actual processing of that feedstock within the supply chain to make sure that we're actually moving towards better, more improved solutions. So just a little bit of context there. And I think it's really great what Claire highlighted in terms of there's a lot of things to still solve for and work that needs to be done, but there's been incredible momentum around this particular fiber type because of stakeholder engagement that Canopy has led, working with brands to actually create sourcing policies around wood pulp specifically for man-made cellulosics. And I think that that has shown significant progress in terms of how we work directly with brands and suppliers to be able to move the needle. There's been a lot said about impact on deforestation. What percentage of feedstock from forests in the Visco supply chains now is certified or is sustainable to a greater or lesser extent? This is one of the challenges that we still face. There's once again been great progress towards sourcing certified materials or excuse me, fibers, but it's only around 50% that are actually certified right now. So we still need to continue to push the industry. And this is what Larray was speaking to earlier in terms of identifying low hanging fruit and those solutions that are in existence to be able to get that number to an increased percentage within the next few years. I know that Textile Exchange has convened a round table on man-made cellulosic fibres. So Megan, what sort of companies and organisations are members of the round table and what has it been set up to do? So we have round tables across each of the fibre categories, obviously within man-made cellulosics, cotton, synthetics, etc. And the intention of these round tables is really to convene around unlocking barriers, sharing best practices, and then more recently to drive collective action around solutions to get us to our ambitious goals. So the way that they've been formed and what's so unique, and I would say the differentiator in terms of other working groups in the industry, is that we have a very broad representation of industry participants. So really inclusive of brands, suppliers, certification bodies, and NGOs that are working on forest management, conservation, and other slew of activities. So it's really great that we have full representation presentation at the table. And with that, to add additional color, we have over 400 participants. You can imagine the level of conversation and excitement. So really to help kind of steer us, we've created an advisory board 
which is essentially a group of stakeholders that helps us to set priorities and determine a plan of action and pathway for the specific fiber type. You mentioned ambitious goals. What are they? What's really exciting is that most recently we hosted our Textile Exchange Annual Conference in Dublin. And with that, we also host in-person roundtable summit meetings. So it's the opportunity for all the participants to get together in a room and start to discuss as we head into the next year where we need to prioritize with guidance from once again that steering committee. And what was really exciting about the conversation and you could feel the level of energy around the room was alignment that we need to shift this round table to actually increase the uptake of preferred fibers and materials to then solve for once again, textile exchanges, 45% GHG reduction target. So it's aligning on that specific target to say whatever we identify as a priority needs to end up or needs to result in achieving this goal. A lot of this still needs to be flushed out, but there are three concepts and levers that the group decided to focus on heading into next year. And essentially this came out of breakout sessions that we hosted throughout the summit to arrive at these three concepts. And the levers being that we need to focus on forest conservation and really implementing regenerative best practices into forest management programs. And then secondly, focusing on shifting to less energy intensive pulp and fiber processing, shifting away from the use of coal, but also looking at the technology that's available and making incremental, but very impactful, significant changes. And then lastly, and there was a lot of conversation in the room around scaling proven innovations for next generation solutions. This is a fiber type where there are solutions already in market. So how do we start to shift product categories, classifications, et cetera, over to these proven next-gen recycled materials, and then start to identify pathways for new innovations that are in this niche phase as well. You mentioned your 45% target. That's 45% reduction by when? By 2030. Great. Thank you. Claire, did you want to come back in? When we think about Climate Plus and the pathways that we have to achieve the 45% reduction, there are three primary levers that we have identified that we need to pull, and we need to pull all three of them. One of them really is around that material substitution, substituting what we already know works and doing that at scale. We're nowhere near what we need to be when it comes to the volume of preferred fibers and materials in the marketplace. And, you know, building on what Meg was just talking about with the roundtables, that is why we have the roundtables is to help uncover those barriers and help really drive that scale, figure out what we need to do to help these materials scale in the marketplace. That transition, those substitutions is a big part of it. Another area that uh, is a little bit stickier, I know, is really looking at how we slow growth. We really do need to look at slowing growth when it comes to achieving this. In all of the modeling we did leading up to Climate Plus and to the target, it becomes nearly impossible to achieve that 45% reduction if we continue a 3% year-on-year growth of new materials entering the marketplace. And so when we're talking about slowing growth, we are really talking about decoupling profit and prosperity from the idea of needing to have more and more new material entering the marketplace. We need to move from 3% to around 1% year-on-year if we really want to achieve this 45% 
percent reduction. It's really interesting. Actually, we've been hearing a lot more from companies about how they are starting to look more seriously and quite seriously in some cases at strategies around new business models, around reclaiming materials, around longevity, durability, you know, having more of a service element. And those activities are going to be absolutely necessary to achieve the 45%. And then the last lever is that innovation, which we we're just talking about, which is the things that we don't yet have calculated. When we think of the innovation space, that really is anything that doesn't currently have an LCA or a set metric that we measure a greenhouse gas reduction against. That could be a textile to textile recycling solution for man-made cellulosics. That could be regenerative agriculture. That could be something around conservation, even within forestry. I mean, there, there are parts of the supply chain right now and the activities that companies around the world and suppliers around the world are exploring that are not currently captured in our traditional LCAs, which is why we are so invested and committed to looking beyond just LCA to this idea of LCA plus in building a more robust and holistic way of thinking about impact, bringing in things like biodiversity, really understanding how we can better measure soil carbon and the opportunities for regenerative agriculture to have a beneficial impact. Those three things and all of that comes together to really be the three levers that we need to pull to achieve that 45% reduction across the industry. And of course, when we say 45% in our case as textile exchange, we really are talking about pre-spin. That's the fiber creation stage. So with man-made cellulosics, that does include the transformation of pulp into fiber. But then we stop and pass on to our partners that pick up in the areas when it comes to spinning and weaving and manufacturing. That's why we're working with organizations like the Apparel Impact Institute, ZDHC, SAC, and others. So yeah, that's a little bit of the Climate Plus look. There's so many aspects to all of this. It's fascinating stuff. Let's just pick up a little bit on the textile to textile recycling. I mean, recycling is something that the apparel sector has been grappling with for some time. What's the potential in man-made fibres for recycling really to be got to scale? I think within man-made cellulosics, there's been a lot of really incredible movement already. Many of the world's biggest man-made cellulosic suppliers have invested heavily in R&D solutions and innovation to at least start to bring in a percentage of recycled. There are actually solutions available on the market right now that include cotton waste in them. They're not 100%, but Refribra from Lensing is example. Um, I know that there are others out there as well as innovators such as Evernew and RenewCell that are out there proving that this is possible. The cotton waste, cotton textile waste into a pulp, into a man-made cellulosics is a very real thing. I think this is an opportunity for companies to really figure out what works for them and start to look at how to scale those things. I mean, just because it's recycled doesn't mean there aren't other impacts. So at the same time, ensuring that we're looking at the chemistry going in, the systems, ensuring that we're creating closed loops systems where we're not having um, hazardous chemicals enter wastewater streams, all very important. But in the same way that the paper industry went through a transformation many years back where we have recycled paper available, we need to be doing that same thing with textiles so that we can remove some of the pressure on forest and still meet the demand of the marketplace. Meg, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add on that. No, I think that's great. And I think that just to shed a little bit more color in terms of the recycling process, it's taking a feedstock, basically waste from cotton, which turns out in processing as a lyocell or man-made cellulosic. So the characteristics change in that production processing. And I think that that's key element of this conversation around the round tables is because we need to also talk about how to design into these fiber types as well. So we're educating the brands in terms of use 
of these fiber types. So I think it's really important once again, to come back to the round tables to show that it's really critical to have representation, to align on these key strategies related to textile, textile recycling and other opportunities to make sure that we're all moving in the same direction, because as stated earlier, we only have eight years to get there. So it's critical that there's key alignment and areas of focus that we're all leaning into. What are the trends then more generally that you think can help the sector move towards a net zero position? We talked about lots of different things there, but where are the big changes going to come from? I think there's going to be interesting things in discussions that we've had with a lot of brands, all of them. Well, I would say over 80% that we have did in a survey with our membership have indicated that they would adopt preferred fibers, but the thing holding them back is price. So when you think about restorative practices, regenerative practices, there's a cost of investment that's incurred there. So we've really got to shift the paradigm from a price only related paradigm to where we can get into talking about the value and the intrinsic value that more preferred materials create. If the market is still looking for parity, the price of conventional fibers and materials where where there is the degradation of soils, deforestation and other harmful practices, it is those prices that have created the poverty and the problems and the things that we're facing. The big shift and one of the bigger barriers is we've we've got to head on, invest in change and invest in responsible practices. The shift to a value paradigm is going to be huge. They're talking about the supply chain gets complicated. If you're still just ordering a product and you are not engaged in your supply network and you're not digging deeper to connect with wherever that fiber is coming from, you're not going to have stable sources. So sending that clear market message and getting engaged with your supply network is going to be is imperative. So the companies that are being successful do have a business model that takes into consideration the investment that needs to be made in a preferred fiber. And they're taking into consideration the investment that needs to be made in people power to make sure those connections into the supply chain are happening. It is complicated to think it's simple and you can just push a button and it's going to happen is not realistic. So it is going to require that mindset shift and a change in business practices. I mean, I guess a change in business models almost. I mean, is one that has developed because of supply chains operating in particular ways. And it is, as you say, comes down to price so much of the time. And it's a significant amount of change that's happened. But it strikes me that the sector seems to have got to the stage where change has been accepted by a great many people involved in the sector. And now we're getting down, down to the real business of what's the change going to look like? What are the solutions that are going to be emerging? So, I mean, are you hopeful, Lorraine, looking forward? Yeah, I am hopeful for next year and the years to come because I think there's a lot of brands who've had a capsule collection or a good program and maybe they've had some good solid work on trying to find out how it works within their organization and they're ready to scale and they know they have to scale. They've made very public commitments when it comes to carbon and biodiversity and and all the things that we have to achieve by 2030 to hit these climate targets. We're seeing more pressure on the environment than we've ever seen before. So it's, I think we finally have the industry's attention. Maybe we can get the traction. We have proven solutions. It's about scaling those proven solutions and taking it from 2% of the business to 10% of the business to 50% of the business. We're calling it the maturation model. It's time to like take those steps and go beyond one or two programs into a full-blown strategy across the organization. We're going to talk about the power sector and climate change and regulatory aspects in our next podcast. But I thought perhaps as a bit of a preview, what is the evolving role of regulation to help here to establish and insist that companies do make the changes that are going to hit your 45% reduction by 2030 targets? 
You know, it's an interesting mix because you do start with voluntary programs to establish what some of these best practices can be. But ultimately, to get it to that critical mass, it has to turn into some policy guidelines, regulation, labeling requirements in order for us to be able to move and transform an entire industry. So what we have now is the cream of crop that, you know, the leaders, the tip of the spear who are driving change. And it's time to move that critical mass into having and being required to follow best practices as well. We have proven solutions. We do have best practices that deliver positive impacts. Now's the time to scale those up and replicate where we need to replicate. And that's where regulation and stricter compliance, stronger measurements that we'll talk about, like you said, in that next podcast around the Climate Plus strategy. It's a partnership all the way across the board. It's going to take private industry doing what they need to do, governments and policymakers doing what they do best, and us as NGOs doing what we do best as far as creating awareness, helping with reports, providing tools and solutions for the pathway. Claire, what do you think is required to use Larry's language to make sure that the cream of the crop aren't still only the ones that are driving change? I couldn't agree more with what Larry said. I think that policy is the next kind of level up is what we're starting to see is that because this hasn't scaled, policymakers are starting to step in when there is going to be changes coming out of COP, not maybe as much policy as we wanted to see, but certainly more policy coming down the line around carbon borders, around carbon taxes. And that will relate to fashion, as will the work that's happening in the European Commission around looking at product life cycle, footprinting, extended producer responsibility. So I do think the policy is going to be a next big part of this conversation But I will also say we just had our conference not very long ago. The cream of the crop is getting bigger, is what I would say, is that it's not niche, certainly, to have a sustainability strategy. To have a sustainability strategy at scale is still maybe a little bit more niche, where it's the majority of your sourcing would be preferred fibers and materials. But the energy that we're seeing is extraordinary. The conversations, the excitement that companies are feeling to really be able to roll up their sleeves and do what they can to be a part of the climate solution instead of the climate problem is good. It's a good feeling. Of course, proof is in the pudding, got some work to do, but that's what we're here for is to help. And as Lorraine said, to move people along that maturation model, help people level up, go from level one to two, three to four, and get to that place where they're driving transformation across the industry. Thank you. And just perhaps a final point, Megan, your roundtable meeting in Dublin How much were you seeing or feeling that as a collective, the members of the round table were really keen to be moving forward in the ways that Larry and Claire have just mentioned? Once again, there was an incredible amount of energy, like you could feel it throughout the room. And I think one kind of highlight to share an aha moment that I had is that the industry has been criticized in terms of greenwashing. And what I noticed in the room is that all parties involved are asking the right questions and that everyone is trying to rally around science-based solutions and that they're starting to look at these data gaps that need to be filled and that we need to make informed decisions. So it's a conversation of scaling up existing solutions, but also for those niche new opportunities, making sure that we have data and directly understand exactly where we need to go. So we are using science to help inform, once again, these decisions. And I want to echo again in terms of what was earlier stated. I think what I'm also really eager to see is that governments intervene and that we start to think about the preservation and conservation as Canopy has kind of deemed ancient and endangered forests, because that is one element of this work, but it's extremely critical as we think about moving into 
to this kind of climate beneficial branch of this work. I guess I said it's a nice way to leave things as we'll come back to these issues, looking at the apparel sector more broadly and thinking about post COP26, how the sector will move towards a net zero position. And we'll talk about that next time. But for now, my thanks to Larry Pepper, to Claire Bergkamp and Megan Stoneburner from Textile Exchange. And my thanks to the Textile Exchange team. I had a further conversation with them about some post-COP26 impacts on the apparel and textile sector. Do look out for that in the next few weeks on Innovation Forum's website, which is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual insights, analysis and podcasts. Don't forget also to take advantage of the early bird discounts for the Innovation Forum's Spring Conference Series. All you need to know is online. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.